0: I really do love this text. Um, we're going to talk about three things to walk through it. The enticement of sin, which is found through uh, in verses one through five, the experience of sin in verse six and seven, and then the estrangement from God in verses eight through thirteen. And we're really going to be focusing on the the first nine verses in particular. But point one, the enticement of sin, it says, In your text, verses 1 through 5, that the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field. And a better translation for that word crafty, I would say, is the word subtle. And uh, what I want you to know about uh, sin is that sin, at each stage of your life, will always be super, super interesting and intriguing to you. Always. Always. And the way that you can recognize it in your own life, it always starts with with this question, and you can kind of translate it into your own life, but it starts with the question, did God actually say blank? Every sin is rooted in getting you to ask that question. And what undermines that is that we assume in our natural state that all, all that God has said, all of his rules, uh, aren't rooted in, in his goodness. In chapter 2, what we see in Genesis is that there's deep, deep friendship between human beings and God, face-to-face intimacy with God, almost mouth-to-mouth as God's creating Adam, breathing life into his being. And what sin does is that it comes in the midst of that perfection. It says, sure, you're experiencing good things. The world can be a nice place, but what if something's missing? Like, what if, what if God is, even though it's good, what if God is keeping something back from me, and that is the root of why we sin? That's the root of why we, why we distrust God. We are deceived into thinking that maybe he's not that good. Maybe he's withholding something from us. And you can always know you're being enticed by sin whenever you come to the Bible and you try to change it or question it in a way that assumes that you have the ability to test whether God is good or not. So, for example, now let me lose you. In our, in our family, we have a rule for my son Lazarus, he's five. And it's that he can't walk near a road. I was reminded of this when uh, we were hanging with Deacon last night. Um, but he can't walk near a road without holding uh, one of our hands. You know, me, Mira's mom, um, my wife's name's Sarah. Now, what if my, my son Lazarus went to school, and he was talking with one of his friends? You know, one of his friends. His name's Jackson, and Jackson said, "You know, you gotta you gotta hold your parents' hand when you walk by a road. That's strange." Because, like, I walk by a road all the time, uh, and I don't have to hold my parents' hand. And what does my son's mind do at that point? It's very, very enticing. You know, he begins to be intrigued by that. I'm like, well, I wonder if I could, I could walk by a road without holding my parents' hand, break their rule. And what's so sad at that point is that he begins to question the goodness of that rule that we placed in his life. That it wasn't put there for his flourishing. And because we love him and because we want him to have the fullest life possible. It's the same with Adam and Eve here. Paul Miller says, Satan seductively gives Adam and Eve the inside track. And says, here's what's really going on. Such is the deadly intimacy that gossip offers. They began to gossip about God. They didn't didn't talk to him. Walter Brueggemann, another commentator, says, God, at that point, becomes a third person. It's not speech to God or with God, but it's about God. God has been objectified in the garden. And once God becomes something or someone that we talk about, we've already lost fellowship with him. It's so hard, so hard to remember that he's here right now. And this is why uh, I ask when I preach, I ask the Holy Spirit before I preach to come, because if we're just talking about God, if God isn't present, and we're not confronted by him. This is, this is pointless and probably detrimental to your, to your spiritual growth. And I want you to hear the gossip in verse 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, which was true. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here's what I want you to see about that text. That is the best lie in the world. It's the best lie in the world because it's true in a sense at every point. He says, you won't surely die, which they didn't immediately die. Their eyes were opened and they did become like God, but not in terms of reflecting him, but almost in terms of being in competition with him with what they, what they know. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment. Before sin entered the world, human beings knew less they didn't know as much. They didn't know what was good or bad. Think about that. If that's a possibility in the new creation, that that's taken away from us, that we don't, we don't know what's good or bad. All their knowledge before the fall was dependent knowledge. They didn't have a thought without taking into account God's presence and his word. We were never supposed to have an independent thought. Isn't that crazy? And you can see, so like you go back to my son, you can see the danger of an independent thought when he's standing out in the middle of the road and cars are rushing by, right? But can you see yourself? You know, trying to figure this world out without taking into account what God has said, trying to figure yourself out. Without taking into account God's gracious, kind rules over our lives. Look, if you were to become a Christian today, very often what happens with new Christians is their pure delight in God's word. They don't question it. They just accept it as it is. They gobble it up. It's not ignorance is bliss, but this is what happens with infants. They stay, they stay near their mothers because they love their mothers. They intuitively want to be near their mothers. But as you mature, what God wants you to do as you develop in the Christian life is to trust Him when it doesn't make sense, is to trust Him when it doesn't feel good, is to trust Him when it's confusing. Now, I want to tell you a story. It's one of my favorite stories in the world. It happened to me. Um, I was driving. So I'm from Georgia. This is when I was living in Texas. I was driving from Georgia to Arkansas. I was with my family, and we stopped in this podunk like Arkansas. And let me talk to you like a Georgian for a second, okay? Um, We we stopped in this tiny little Arkansas town, um, and there were no restaurants around, and I was super super hungry. And so I got, I got my phone out, and it said that there were like three dominoes within like a mile radius. I was like, oh, cool. Um, and, and so I called one of them, and I, I, uh, I was like, hey, um, is this a Domino's? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, okay. And I was like, can I, can I have uh, the hand toss crust, and can I pick it up in about 15 minutes? And she's like, I guess. Um, <laughs> And, and so for some reason in my mind, I think, I think this is the case. I think her name was Tammy because, I, like, I said her name when I got to the Domino's. So I walk in, and this is, like, there was only one person in the store, and he had ridden to the gas station with a bike, and he had, like, trash bags over the handles. The moment I walk in, Tammy is like, your pizza ain't ready. I was like, okay. Um, and so I'm, like, trying to kill time in the gas station because it just felt so awkward. And then she said, okay, your pizza's ready. And so I walk over, and she said, honey, do you want any crushed red pepper or parmesan? And I said, Tammy, can I get, this is what I want. I want two parmesans and one crushed red pepper. And she was, like, leaning over the counter like this. And I kid you not, she turned around, and she said, honey, you can have whatever you want. (laughs) Which I later learned was like a Ti song, um, which I didn't listen to Ti. Uh, and what I want you to to know is like that's that's the lie of the serpent. <laughs> <laughs> that you can have whatever you want. And the reason why we're in this mess is because we chose whatever we wanted without God. We decided that whatever we wanted was better than what God wanted. Any of you ever seen the movie Winner's Bone? Well, then it would be lost on you. Uh, But I think the reason why rural impoverished America fascinates me why I'm drawn to it, why I'm scared of it, is because that is my inner reality every day. It's dark in there. Because my life is driven by what I want. And it drove me and drives me to sadness so much of the time because I listen to the lie of my flesh, which will die. This is the lie of evil. That if you go down that path, you're going to be so happy. This is why sin is so enticing. That, and if you just think about your life right now, that's where all the problems started. That's where the root is with the enticing question: well, Why can't I have this? It's what I want. It feels good to me. It feels right to me. Don't I deserve it? I've been through so much. Hmm. It's unfortunate that most of us have been sold on this mantra that you deserve whatever it is you want in relationships, in occupation, in church, in life. And I've talked to so many people now, as I've been in ministry for, for years now, who've wished that, the, that their mom and dad hadn't done whatever they wanted to that felt right to them. That they they wished with all their heart that dad would have said no to himself for the sake of the family. That mom said no to herself and her desires for the sake of the family. Self-denial. We've forgotten. We've forgotten in our world that there's so much joy and self-restraint and self-denial based upon God's ways. And what Genesis is showing these these Israelites, you know, Genesis was written to the Israelites coming out of slavery. They were in slavery for 400 years, and they were wandering around a wilderness, and Genesis is, is like teaching them, look, this is where it all went wrong. This is why you're wandering around a wilderness, because you keep questioning my word, and I love you, and I'm coming after you. Stop questioning my word. And this is where we are. Genesis is telling you the same thing, that this is where it all fell apart. And it started with the enticement of sin, which is rooted in calling God's word and character into question. In our fallen human nature, there's nothing more desirable than that, than questioning God's word and distrusting his goodness. And this is why every time somebody becomes a Christian, it's a miracle. It's an absolute, like if you're a Christian, at some point, this is what the Holy Spirit does. You never get over it. You keep waking up and like, I, I still can't believe I believe. This is crazy. Like, God is real to me and to other people. And like, I'm alive. And there's mountains over there that like, are some, are like my senses tell me that's, that's beautiful. And these people that I'm with show me God. You know, the Christian grows in the the development of being astonished at the miracle that he's good. What Jesus did on earth will live on into eternity because he was in the worst of conditions. He was not in a garden. He was in a desert. And at every point, at the enticement of sin, every single point, he declined the lies of evil. He said, I'm going to show self-restraint. And he was tempted in every single way that we were. And he said, no, I trust in the goodness of my father. We have to move on from the enticement of sin to the experience of sin. In verse 6 and 7, look there at your text. Did you, you hear how sensual the experience of sin is? The tree looked good, this tree that they weren't supposed to eat looked good. It tasted good. It got Eve's heart rate up. You know, sin gets the hairs on the back of our neck to stand up. God's word was good too, but it was just kind of normal, you know, every day. And eating of this tree was new and exhilarating. One commentator uh, mentioned that this is why the Lord's Prayer doesn't say, lead us out of temptation, but it says, lead us not into temptation because God knows we can't handle it, like we just simply can't handle it. One commentator says, once we are near the tree, and he's talking like we are in Adam and Eve's position, and I, wanted, I want you to, to see if you've experienced this before. Once you are near the tree, your pulse begins to rise, your curiosity flares up, your passions are aroused, and in that situation, our ability to make decisions is paralyzed. The original fight or flight, you know. Y'all know that feeling? I used to beat myself up over that feeling. The exhilaration of even the thought of disobeying God. And I would say, you know, if I I really was a Christian, if I really loved God, I'd obey in those moments. I wouldn't be so aroused to sin. And I think what verse 6 and 7 teach us is don't kid yourself. Jesus is saying, don't kid you, you can't handle temptation. So pray that God would prevent you from entering into it. Don't beat yourself up over the fact that your flesh cannot handle the presence of something that would entice it into death. What 6 and 7, verse 6 and 7 teach us is that Human beings, we, we have free will, but without God, we will 100% of the time always choose the path away from God. And that's why we need, this is what theologians have called original sin, that's why we need God to implant his spirit and his heart inside of us so that we have the capacity to even begin to choose what he wants for us. This is what he does in conversion, that he he takes his spirit and he puts it in your heart. And he says, I'm going to make you desire the things that I want you to desire because I'm going to give you Christ, the hope of glory in the spirit, which always reminds you always that Christ is real. And he's the point of your existence. And he's what's going to make you happy. And he's going to rise you from the dead. I don't know what keeps you up at night. Uh, but a lot of times for me, you know, if I'm just, if I'm just being complete, completely honest, it's money, it's my children, um, it's my church, the, the anxiety of pastoring a church, It's world events that how to navigate past years, how to navigate COVID. And I think part of what uh, God is going to do in our lives is that over time, and this can happen even in this life, God can keep you up at night so that you get him. And that you're not filled with anxiety all the time. You're not filled with what's going to happen tomorrow. But you can, you can wake up in the middle of the night and be exhilarated and inclined towards Him. And you're happy that that can happen. That's what His Spirit does in you. The, the sad part, uh, you know, this is how sin works. The sad part about sin is that the other side is always so disappointing. We have a catechism question that I made up in our home. And uh, it's, the answer is, what is sin like? And the answer is, sin is fun at first, but then it's sad. Kind of like dominoes. You know, I love dominoes. It's like, oh, I want some dominoes. And I eat the whole piece and I'm like, nah. <laughs> mm. The aftermath of going against God's word is never as pleasurable as the build up nor as intriguing as the serpent made it seem and the worst part is then this is a sad this is a sad part which we've all experienced the knowledge of our nakedness which leads to shame which leads us to hide from each other and hide from ourselves and then hide from God. When you as a human being, as his image, were made to be open to him and to say, bless me, you go and hide behind a tree, just like Adam and Eve. And we make up all sorts of trees to hide behind, right? I had a, a friend once who said, this is a, a mutual friend of Jess and I back in seminary, he said, you know, addiction to pornography is like setting a silent grenade off in my family and community that no one knows about except me. And that can be said of every sin, though. Never believe the lie that what you do in secret doesn't affect everything that you do and all the people that you're around, because it brings shame into your life. And the people in your life, you know what they need from you? They need you to believe that God loves them. Like what Arwen said, unconditionally. And to live in the confidence of that. And to give that to them. And say, so it, can, it can be for you too. That's what they need from you. They don't need shame. They don't, they don't need you to falsely beat yourself up. Look at verse 7. When we sin, we cross a line that we were never meant to cross. Their eyes were opened. And then they see them sale, themselves as naked. And they were, they were disappointed in how their physical bodies Looked. God wasn't disappointed in how they looked, but they were disappointed in themselves. And so they feel ashamed of who they are and what their bodies look like and what their bodies have done. You guys are about to get to Romans 12. I want you to look at how Paul talks about undoing that with presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Think about that in two weeks. But then they hide, here in our text, they hide and they went from being face to face with God to being so pitiful. Look, this is why, you ever wonder why when you look in the mirror, you are never, ever satisfied? You look and you're just like, uh, why is that? It's not how God looks at you. You ever wonder why you have social anxiety? need chemicals just to get through you ever wonder why you hear nine voices of praise and one voice of critique which one are you going home thinking about what verse 7 is saying is that th- this is this is why we struggle to not enjoy ourselves to not like ourselves And this is what happened. This is where, what John Newton says, we are a riddle of inconsistencies. And the beautiful part about what I get to offer you guys today and to offer myself is that I don't have to really convince you all of anything that I've already said up till now. That's easy. What's way harder to convince you of is that God in the middle of all of it comes after you. And in our text, he asks you such a beautiful, beautiful question. He says, where are you? In our third point, the estrangement from God, there may never be a more kind question that is posed to you in your life than God himself coming to you and saying, where are you? Really? Really? If you sat down with somebody that you respected and that you, you actually felt like you had their ear, they weren't like distract, distracted constantly, and, and you love this person, and they, and they said to you, and they're sitting across from the table, and they looked at you and they said, no, really, tell me, where are you at? Like as a person, what would you say? One of our one of our professors uh, visited some pastors in Tokyo, Japan, and he said, "You know, they like their aquariums over there in Japan with fish and stuff." And uh, he said, "This guy was Scottish. His name is Sinclair Ferguson. He said it was interesting because uh, I saw a fish that was completely see-through, transparent. All you could see was his eyes. You know, swimming." And he was, he was like, it was as if God was saying, Ferguson, I see straight through you. <laughs> um, God sees straight through us. So why hide? We're really bad at it. We're scared. We don't know what the future holds. Uh, Two years have been crazy. A, A week and a half ago, the world changed again. Where are you in the midst of all that? God's curious. God's curious about you. And he wants you to know he sees straight through you, but it's not vindictive with love. He likes what he sees because he likes what he creates. When my children disobey, I have a daughter named Ambrose. I remember when she disobeyed, she would always divert her gaze. She would look at us in the eyes, and we would would say, um, and by the way, no one taught her to do that. It's in her nature, and that's what Genesis is teaching us, but we would say, hey, Ambrose, look, look at us in the eyes. Look at that in the eyes. And that's what God does to you through the Bible. And he says, I want, I want you to engage with me. Don't break eye contact with God. And what God wants you to know is that Jesus' love is so powerful that he can take a person like Judas who comes at him with a kiss, stabs him in the back, and he says, My love is more powerful than what you're doing to me right now. I can save people like you from yourself. And that's what you want. That's what I want. That's what I need. That there, There's... Nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And there will not be any more condemnation, even self condemnation, because of the gospel. And so the question is where are you? In Christ? I think so. That's what the world needs. That's what you need. That's what I need. Because Christ never hid from God. He never had the experience of wanting to get behind a tree. Nor did he ever have the experience of being afraid of other people and what they saw. And he was tempted like we are in every way, but he never gave in. You just think about what that life must have been like. And the beautiful part about Jesus is that he never blamed anybody else for his circumstances, like Adam and Eve did, like we do all the time. And the reason why he died naked, completely exposed on a tree, was because Genesis 3 is about you and me. And he's saying, I would love to take your place. I would love for you to be found in me, the better Adam, the second man, the representative of all humankind. And you can escape the trap of your flesh, which is so enticing. And the beautiful the beautiful part about Christianity is that you can begin to tell yourself, "This is I, that's who I am. I'm in. I'm in Jesus. I don't have to give myself to the experience and enticement of sin. And I actually can give myself to God now. And you begin. You can begin to want to do that. That's the offer of the gospel for you today. Um, as you continue to go through the the Lenten season, what? What Arwen said was, was absolutely perfect. You, you don't give things up to beat yourself up, but you give things up to remember the gospel. And as you walk through Romans, I want you to see how Paul makes that transition through Justin's preaching into Romans 12 on how you practice the gospel in your, in your life. Um, that's, that's the end of the sermon. I did, I did want to say one thing about the history of this church I remember sitting in Dallas in a hotel with with Justin. I think it was around circa 2012. And it it wasn't looking good um, financially. And I remember uh, Justin trusting God and him entrusting himself to you all. And what I want to tell you is that you've taken good care of my friend. And I appreciate it. Because he takes care of me, and he takes care of our cohort group, and that allows him to lead us and to continue to preach the gospel in our various states. So we're all over the United States, but Justin leads that, and so I'm, I'm very grateful for you as a body caring for Justin and his family because that allows him to care for us. I'm going to pray, and then we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. All right, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless your dear saints here at City Press. I feel so inclined towards them. I love them. And I know that you are working in their midst and that you have used them in powerful ways to bring new life into the world, to face death with hope, and to also weather the storms of this world, knowing uh, that you are with us. And so, Holy Spirit, would you be with them? Would you continue to use them uh, in in ways that maybe they don't even understand, um, but that you are getting the glory through them constantly? And so thank you. I praise you for that. In Christ's name. Amen.